Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of assault, mutilation, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. How far would you go to help someone you love? Would you help them commit a crime? Would you help them cover it up? What if they asked you to take the blame for what they did? Well, they say that true love conquers all. Edith Klump wanted to believe in the power of love. If she sacrificed everything for her boyfriend, Bill, then love had to see them through. But as the evidence piled up around her, Edith would soon come to realize that she'd placed her trust in the wrong man. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we met Edith Klump, an unhappy housewife who had two divorces and several affairs. Then she met Bill Bergen, who she wanted to settle down with, except he was still married. It was a contentious love triangle until one day, Bill accidentally shot his wife. And then everything got a whole lot harder. This week, we'll explore why Edith confessed to a crime she didn't commit and what happened later to make her change her story. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Too Faced Cosmetics and Better Than Sex Mascara. The name literally says it all. This mascara is that good. There is a formula for anyone and everyone available in original, waterproof, and chocolate that thickens, lengthens, and curls to give you all the drama and volume. Or try the new Naturally Better Than Sex. It has a 98% naturally derived formula. Shop Too Faced Better Than Sex Mascara at Sephora today. On October 30, 1958, 
40-year-old Edith Klump stood on the side of the road, her head swimming. She needed a moment away from her boyfriend, 30-year-old Bill Bergen, and his wife, 32-year-old Louise. They'd been fighting for almost an hour, and it had gotten way too intense for Edith. She took a few deep breaths. But then, just as Edith was about to rejoin them, a gun went off. Edith raced back to the car and saw Louise's bloody body. Edith screamed, and then she fainted from the shock. When she regained consciousness a few minutes later, she immediately tried to find help. She went running down the road, but Bill chased after and stopped her. His voice was calm as he assured her that he hadn't meant to shoot Louise. The two of them had been struggling over the gun, and it just went off. Now he needed Edith's help. The cops would never believe that it had actually been an accident. Louise was his ex-wife, after all, so he needed Edith to take the fall. They'd go easier on her anyway, since she was a woman. They'd probably even let her off scot-free. At first, Edith hesitated. That was a lot to ask, but Bill likely played on her emotions, arguing that if she really loved him, she would do this for him. When that wasn't enough to convince her, Bill threatened her children. Before we continue with Edith's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to criminologist Charlotte Barlow, coercion like this is common in criminal cases where women are co-offenders with their partners. The man often uses threats and manipulation to get what he wants from his girlfriend or wife. In Bill's case, this meant threatening Edith and her kids, while also taking advantage of her love for him. This doesn't take away any agency from Edith. The choices she made next were made of her own volition, but it does help put into context why she went along with Bill's plan. Edith walked back to the car and checked Louise's pulse. She tried shaking her too, but Louise didn't move. It was clear she was dead. While Edith processed this, Bill popped open the trunk. Then he grabbed Louise by the legs and dragged her out of the car, her head hitting the ground on the way down. Edith helped him shove the body into the trunk. Once that was done, Edith drove Bill back to his car. He was going to clean up and then stop by a friend's place so he'd have an alibi. Edith needed one, too. Luckily, she had a sewing class she was scheduled to teach that night. She arrived about half an hour late, but beyond that, she acted completely normal. When the class was over, Edith went back home. She tucked her kids into bed and then met Bill in the living room to go over their plan. Bill assured her that they would be fine, but they should probably avoid mentioning that they were posing as a married couple or that Edith was pregnant. Neither would look good for them. Edith just nodded. One of those would be easy enough to ignore. After all, she wasn't actually pregnant. That was just something she had told Bill to keep him interested. Bill pressed on with the logistics. They needed to get rid of the body, and he thought they should dump it in the river. Edith suggested they go out to Cowan Lake, which was about two hours away and very secluded. 
Edith and Bill drove there that night. They tried to find an access road that would get them right up to the water, but there weren't any. The body was too heavy to carry that far, so Bill decided they'd burn it. Edith was probably shocked, although by her own account, she did nothing to stop him as he dragged Louise's body to a clearing and covered it with papers and rags. Edith heard keys rattling in Louise's pockets. She debated saying something, but then she thought better of it. If she left them there, someone might be able to identify Louise and let her family know. Edith just kept thinking about her own kids and how devastated she'd be if something happened to them and she didn't know. She didn't want that for Louise's mother. Bill, unaware of his girlfriend's thoughts, grabbed a can of gas from the car and poured it over Louise's body. Then he took a match and lit it. The fire shot straight up, engulfing the body. They watched for a minute, but then Bill told Edith to get into the car and drive. As they left the scene, the fire continued to burn behind them. On their way home, they found Louise's shoes and eyeglasses in the car. They randomly tossed them out the window, scattering them across the area. By the time they got back to Cincinnati, Bill was worried that they hadn't burnt the body well enough. He decided they'd go back in the morning to double check. Edith nodded in agreement, going along just like she had all day. But before they could go back, Louise's mother called Bill. Louise was missing. Had he seen her? He said no, but offered to check the local hospitals and help search for her. When he got off the phone, he turned to Edith and told her that she needed to go back out to Cowan Lake and deal with the body herself. Edith agreed, but the two-hour drive to the lake gave her enough time to reconsider what she was doing. Just before she got to the side road that would lead her to Louise's body, she turned around and headed back home. She just couldn't do it. When Bill called later, she told him she had done as he asked. But really, what she had done all day was clean the car. She scrubbed every part of it to get rid of the bloodstains. When she was finished, it looked pretty good to her eye. But Edith wasn't exactly a master criminal. She had no idea what it took to really erase that much evidence. The next day, November 1st, 1958, Three young duck hunters stumbled upon Louise's body at Cowan Lake. She was burnt beyond recognition. The authorities quickly arrived and searched the scene, with Detective Robert Dunbar taking the lead. They couldn't ID the body, but they did recover a gold necklace and a set of keys. Then the police got a lucky break in the case. A call came in that 32-year-old Louise Bergen was missing. The detectives went to talk to Louise's family, including Bill. They asked if any of them recognized the objects they had found at the scene of the crime. Bill identified the key ring as being Louise's, and her mother recognized her gold necklace. That was a great start on its own, but then detectives discovered another potential lead. During their routine questioning of the family, it came out that while Bill was still married to Louise, he had been living full-time with his girlfriend, 40-year-old 
Edith Klump. The detectives went straight to Edith. She provided the alibi that she and Bill had agreed on. She said she had gone shopping at a department store around 5 p.m. that evening, then had dinner at home before teaching her sewing class at 7 p.m. The cops told her they'd check out her story, but they'd appreciate her coming in to give a formal interview and statement the next day. Edith agreed. At this point, the authorities were split on their theories of what had happened. Some, like Dunbar, were convinced Edith was involved. Others thought that they ought to be looking more closely at Bill, or perhaps that Louise had her own lover who might be involved. Dunbar pushed forward with his focus on Edith. He interviewed Robert Klump, her ex-husband, who told him all about Edith's financial situation. To Dunbar, that was a possible motivation. When he asked Edith about it, she seemed a little rattled by the accusation, but she stuck by her story. In fact, she nearly parroted back the exact same points, word for word, as the last time, which only made Dunbar even more suspicious. While Edith was being interviewed, other detectives searched her car. It was clear it had recently been cleaned, but they still found something of interest, a bobby pin that had been overlooked, tucked between the seats. It looked like it had blood on it. They bagged it and sent it off to the lab for testing. It came back positive with type A blood, the same as Louise Bergen's. By November 14th, two weeks after Louise's body was found, the police started conducting polygraph tests. They had interviewed over 60 people in connection with the case, but there were a few who they wanted more from, including Edith and Bill. Bill was up first, but when he arrived at police headquarters, he was so nervous that they determined they couldn't use the tests. Every question would be marked as a lie, even when they asked him his own name. So they told him to go home and relax and come in again later. He did just that. On his second try, he was much better. By the end of the test, his proctor determined that he had no guilty knowledge of Luis's murder. Edith was scheduled to come in for a polygraph later that day. Most of the detectives had come around to the theory that she was their perpetrator, so they had left her for last. Edith sensed that she was in trouble, but there was nothing she could do. As the polygraph proctor set up the heart rate monitor, Edith tried to remain calm, but for three grueling hours, she had question after question lobbed at her, and it became increasingly more difficult. She tried to play it cool, but she knew some of her answers were flimsy at best, and others she had struggled to even come up with. When the test was over, the proctor left the room. Edith remained there for another hour, sweating it out as she waited for the results. Finally, detectives came to talk to her, but it wasn't good news. She had failed her polygraph test, and on top of that, they had searched her car and found blood that matched Louise's. Edith thought quickly on her feet. She tried to explain the blood away by saying that Louise had been in the car a few weeks ago and had a nosebleed, but the cops didn't buy that. Not long after that, Edith started to crack. She asked to talk to Bill. 
the police brought him in but remained in the room as observers. Under their watchful eye, Bill told her to just tell the truth for the sake of her kids. To the detectives, it seemed like words of encouragement from a partner, but Edith knew them for what they really were, a threat. And so she started to talk, but what came out was a bald-faced lie. She said that it had just been her and Louise in the car together, that it had been an accident, that the gun had been in the car because Edith was using it for target practice, that it had gone off during a struggle between the two of them. But the police didn't believe her. They thought it was a premeditated killing, not an accident. After all, she had a clear motive. So they arrested Edith and charged her with first-degree murder. And once the prosecutors got involved, it only got worse. They wanted the death penalty. Edith was shocked. They were supposed to go easy on her. That's what Bill had promised. But that wasn't the case at all. Now Edith really had to convince everyone it was an accident. Otherwise, she was going to have a date with the electric chair. Up next, Edith fights for her life. Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Now back to the story. On November 18, 1958, 40-year-old Edith Klump took the fall for her boyfriend, Bill Bergen. Police arrested Edith for the murder of Bill's wife, Louise, after she gave a false confession. The police didn't know that they were being purposefully misled, but they did get the sense that Edith wasn't necessarily telling the whole story. They believed that Louise's death was premeditated, not an accident. By the next morning, the city's newspapers had all caught wind and printed competing stories. One outlet even got Bill on record, but he wasn't the supportive boyfriend Edith had assumed he would be. Instead, he tried to distance himself from her. He said he had never planned on marrying her and that he had been trying to reconcile things with his wife. 
It's unclear how much of this trickled back to Edith in police custody. Either she heard it and didn't believe it, or she simply never caught wind of Bill's comments. If she had, maybe she would have wavered on whether to keep protecting him. Instead, Edith stuck to their story. On the morning of November 19th, the day after she was arrested, the police took her on a field trip to Cowan Lake, where Luis's body had been found. She couldn't lie about that location, so she identified the scene as requested. There was also the matter of Luis's shoes and eyeglasses. Edith told police she had tossed them out along the way home. She said she had thrown the gun out of the window too, although that one was untrue. Bill had taken it home with him. The detectives asked her to show them where she disposed of the items, and they drove back toward the city. She pointed out different fields as they passed by, claiming that it was where she had tossed things. Eventually, they reached the field where she said that she had tossed the gun, so the police got out and started to do a sweep. They went from one end of the field to the other, in a line, searching for it in the brush. Officer Stagenhorst, another lead on Edith's case, took up the rear and double-checked to make sure nothing was missed. But he was more concerned with Edith herself. Every time he looked up at her, she was smiling back at him. It was unsettling, and it made him think that she was deliberately misleading them and that she was enjoying it. By the time the police returned to the station, they had found none of the extra items. But their time with Edith ended after that. Her lawyer, 60-year-old William Foster Foss Hopkins, was waiting to talk to his client. And he was irate. The way he saw it, the police should never have gotten a statement from Edith without him being present. They claimed that she hadn't asked for a lawyer. She later said that she had, but that the detectives had persuaded her to let them continue while they waited for Hopkins to arrive. Either way, once Hopkins was there, he and Edith got a private room to discuss the case. She talked for three hours with hardly any interruptions. Edith gave him the same version of events she'd told police. But right from the start, Hopkins doubted her account. He didn't believe she could have burned the body in broad daylight for three hours in a state park. Nor did he think that she had the strength to move a dead body on her own. It seemed painfully obvious to Hopkins that she was covering for Bill. But when he confronted her with that possibility, she flatly denied it. And nothing he said would persuade her otherwise. While Edith was held without bond, Bill came to visit her. On the outside, he was doing everything he could to distance himself from her, but he also knew that he needed to keep her sweet on him. At any point in time, Edith was free to change her story. He had to make sure she didn't do that. So during his visits, he assured her that the plan would still work. She just had to stay the course. But then the visit stopped, and Edith wasn't sure why. Not until Hopkins told her the truth. Bill had quit his job and moved to Washington, D.C. with a new woman. Edith was stunned. She felt utterly betrayed. And then she got depressed. She grew pale and withdrawn. She lost weight, and her resolve seemed to weaken. 
Hopkins thought on multiple occasions that she might cave and tell him the truth, but each time she stopped herself just before that moment, whether out of fear or loyalty, we don't know. By the time her trial came around, Hopkins was still stuck in a tricky situation. He had to defend his client according to her wishes, even though he was certain she hadn't committed the crime she had confessed to. But it didn't matter. She was sticking to her story. Edith's steadfastness fascinated the public. People couldn't seem to figure her out. Was her apparent resoluteness because she was cold and guarded or because she was scared? A murder was spectacle enough, but a housewife on trial, possibly facing the electric chair, was something they had never seen. Add to that the love triangle between Edith, Bill, and Louise, and people simply couldn't get enough. Some of the onlookers who crowded into Edith's trial called it better than television. They all watched with bated breath as the trial began. The prosecutor, C. Watson Hover, painted Edith as a greedy woman who wanted to eliminate her rival. Hopkins, on the other hand, argued that Edith had acted only out of self-defense. Louise had been waving a gun, and Edith had tried to wrestle it away from her before it had accidentally gone off. And if that was the case, there were only two options, manslaughter or not guilty. First-degree murder never should have been on the table. Over the next two days, 13 witnesses were called. On the third day, the coroner took the stand and shared pictures from the autopsy. Hopkins tried to block them from being shown to the jury. He argued that seeing Louise's charred body would unfairly sway the jury. But he was overruled. The judge allowed the pictures to be shown, and it had the exact effect Hopkins worried it would. He watched as the jury took in the gruesome photos, and Hopkins knew his client was in trouble. Then the prosecution brought out the heavy hitters. First, they called Robert Klump, Edith's ex-husband, to discuss the divorce settlement and her financial situation. Then they called Fred Haste, one of Edith's early ex-boyfriends, who confirmed that they had gone to Caldwell Circle before, proving that the alleged murder location was somewhere Edith had frequented. And then Bill Bergen took the stand. Edith tried to catch Bill's eye, but once she heard his testimony, her world started to crumble. He totally threw her under the bus. He told the jury that he had never actually proposed to Edith. The ring on her finger was just to make her happy, but it didn't mean anything. He was still married to Louise and loved her. Edith was devastated. She knew this was all part of the plan, but she hadn't expected him to be so harsh. At one point, she even turned to her lawyer and said that she could ruin Bill with what she knew, so he'd better think about what he said. But in the end, Edith let Bill finish his testimony, and despite her attorney's hopes, she didn't say a word against her ex-lover. Then, finally, it was Edith's turn to take the stand. She testified for the next two days, repeating the same rehearsed story she'd been giving since October. Louise's death was an accident, 
no one else was involved. The prosecution went hard in cross-examination, painting her as a liar. They brought up the bank loan, the old realtor who she had duped, and even the pregnancy she had lied about to Bill. On the stand, she swore that she really had been pregnant, but that she'd suffered a miscarriage right before her arrest. And then the prosecution did something strange. They handed Edith the murder weapon and asked her to load it. Edith took it in her hands and tried to do as she was asked. She carelessly aimed it about as she did, and then the courtroom heard a distinctive click. They gasped. In her efforts to load the gun, Edith had accidentally pulled the trigger. She seemed to have absolutely no idea what she was doing. If the prosecution was trying to make a point that Edith knew how to use the gun, they failed miserably. But still, as the trial wrapped up, even that disastrous demonstration didn't seem like it would hurt the state's case. After Edith's testimony, the jury went off to deliberate. They came back the next day on July 2nd with their decision. 40-year-old Edith sat in her seat, waiting patiently with her head bowed, praying for good news. But her prayers weren't answered. She was found guilty of murder in the first degree, with no recommendation for mercy. And that decision came with an automatic death penalty sentence. Edith couldn't believe what had just happened. Bill had promised that they would go easier on her as a woman. Instead, she was now heading to death row. And he hadn't even stayed by her side. He had completely abandoned her. As Edith stewed over the betrayal, she was kept at Hamilton County Jail. While there, Reverend Oscar Minyard came to visit Edith. He was convinced that Edith was lying about what had actually happened. But where others had failed, Minyard convinced Edith to tell him the truth. It seemed that Edith had finally had enough. She wasn't going to protect Bill any longer. According to researcher Pamela Pimentel, reciprocity is inherent in every type of relationship. There's always some sort of goods and services being exchanged, whether tangible, like money, or intangible, like love. So long as both parties feel they're getting a good deal, then they'll stay. In a criminal partnership, it even makes them more likely to take the blame for the other person if they think it'll help continue the relationship. But if that balance is upset and suddenly one person feels like they're getting the short end of the stick, the partnership breaks down. In Edith's case, she finally realized that the price she was paying was simply too high. So she told the Reverend everything, and then Minyard called Hopkins to share the news. Hopkins couldn't believe it. He rushed to interview Edith. He had to hear it for himself. Edith repeated her story to Hopkins. The murder hadn't taken place at Caldwell Park, but actually on Stratton Drive, a dead-end street behind a Mount Washington subdivision. And it hadn't been her who had pulled the trigger. It had been Bill. And then he had forced her to cover it up and take the fall for him. Hopkins listened, optimistic about their chances for the first time since signing on to defend Edith. 
It was a long shot to overturn a death sentence, but with Edith finally telling the truth, he just might be able to save her. Up next, Edith pleads with the governor to spare her life. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Now back to the story. In July of 1959, 41-year-old Edith Klump was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. It came as a complete shock. Her boyfriend, Bill Bergen, had assured her that she'd get off easy. Now, not only was she heading to the electric chair, but Bill had completely abandoned her. In the wake of this betrayal, Edith finally decided to tell the real story of what happened to Louise Bergen. She was done covering for Bill. He was the one who had pulled the trigger. And so, during her appeal for a new trial on August 20th, Edith's lawyer, Foss Hopkins, had her revised confession read into the court record. Edith listened, trembling, hoping this would be enough. Unfortunately, there hadn't been enough time to corroborate Edith's story yet. Hopkins had hired private detectives, but they hadn't unearthed any new evidence or witnesses to back up Edith. So the judge ruled that the jury's decision would stand. He scheduled Edith's death sentence for December 15, 1959, just four months away. That gave Hopkins a short amount of time to go on the offensive. He spoke to the press, arguing on Edith's behalf and accusing Bill Bergen of everything. He even said that she'd take a truth serum test to prove her story. The state just needed to name the time and place. While Hopkins fought for her in the media, Edith was transferred to the Reformatory for Women in Marysville. Death row inmates were never integrated with the rest of the population, so she was kept in a solo cell. It was spacious enough, but she was always alone. The closest she ever got to another inmate was watching them through a small window as they exercised in the yard. Meanwhile, Bill was living it up in Washington, D.C. He was surprised to hear about the turn of events, but he played it cool. He accused Edith of grasping at straws and swore that he had no part in his wife's death. Behind bars, Edith waited for updates on her case. Her execution date moved three times as her appeals were passed from one court to another, first from December to May, then to June. Finally, Hopkins had no choice but to try to take Edith's cause to the Supreme Court, but they refused to hear the case. So Edith got her fourth execution date, December 9, 1960. Edith tried to take it all in stride, but it was challenging. It wore her down, both physically and mentally. She had periods of intense melancholy, and she stopped taking care of herself entirely. Her hair went gray, 
Her skin got pale. It looked as if death was certain for Edith. And that's when Ohio Governor Michael DeSalle stepped in. He once again delayed her execution until he could investigate the matter. DeSalle opposed the death penalty on principle. He had already commuted two death sentences before Edith's case came across his desk. When he decided to review her case, Edith was once again filled with hope. This was her last chance. She had to convince him of her innocence. She met with DeSalle three times over the last week of December. On New Year's Eve, their meeting ran for nearly four hours, and with each minute they spent together, DeSalle became increasingly convinced that Edith was telling the truth. He just needed proof. So on January 4, 1961, just 48 hours before Edith's scheduled execution, DeSalle took Hopkins up on the offer to test Edith with a truth serum. DeSalle brought psychiatry professor Dr. Milton Parker with him to the prison to administer sodium amytal. Even in the early 60s, the use of truth serum drugs was strongly criticized and would soon be ruled inadmissible in court, but for the time being, they were allowed. At first, Edith was hesitant to undergo another interrogation, no matter what her lawyer had promised. She worried that she would mess up and it would only hurt her more. DeSalle chalked her reaction up to a woman scared of hurting her children, but it's just as likely that Edith simply didn't want to be out of control. But in the end, Edith knew she had no other choice. This was her best option if she wanted to convince DeSalle that she was telling the truth. She would just have to take the risk. Dr. Parker inserted an IV into her arm and then began to administer the sodium amytal. And then Edith started to tell her story. In theory, what Edith was saying had to be the truth, or at least that was the thinking at the time. Truth serum drugs were designed to do the exact opposite of polygraph tests. Whereas the polygraph caused stress, the sodium amytal was meant to eliminate stress. Instead of catching someone in a lie, the truth serum made the person so calm and subdued that they became unable to lie. But the problem with both of those tests was that they were equally unreliable. Where the polygraph can cause so much stress that it seems like you're lying when you're not, the opposite can be said for truth serums. They can make it seem like you're telling the truth when you aren't. According to journalist Jessica Orwig, people might tell the truth when under the influence of a drug like sodium amytal, but they're also likely to say something to please someone that is not necessarily true. These drugs can give the individual a warm, friendly feeling toward their interrogator. Between that and the state of severe disorientation, individuals can end up saying what they think their questioner wants to hear, rather than the absolute truth. Despite these concerns about the validity of the test, Governor DeSalle left satisfied. Edith had told him her version of events, and he was convinced that these were the actual facts of the case. Later that day, Governor DeSalle summoned Edith's lawyer, Foss Hopkins, and the state prosecutor, C. Watson Hover, to his office. 
DeSalle told them his decision at the same time. He thought Edith was innocent, and he was going to commute her sentence. He might pardon her completely in the future, but for now, he was going to reduce her sentence from the death penalty to life in prison. Hopkins was relieved, but Hover was outraged. DeSalle wanted the case reopened, and specifically for them to look into Bill's role before he made a decision about fully pardoning Edith. But Hover refused to help. If the governor wanted the case reopened, he would have to do it himself. Meanwhile, when Edith heard the news, she was absolutely elated. It wasn't a full pardon yet, but it was certainly something. She immediately started to fix her hair, confident that she would soon be having visitors again. She seemed revived by the decision. The old Edith was coming back. But the decision didn't turn out so well for everyone. DeSalle was harshly criticized in the press for it. Many accused him of letting his own personal beliefs about capital punishment influence his upholding of the law. Others thought he had been manipulated by Edith and that he had fallen for the Helpless Woman Act, that he simply didn't want to be the one to send a mother to the electric chair. Despite the public's outrage, Edith's story started to get corroborated. After DeSalle reopened the case, investigators found evidence in the new locations Edith had provided. Every day, her story got a little stronger. Unfortunately, there was a lot of opposition from the Cincinnati police and district attorneys. DeSalle pushed hard for them to look into Bill again, but the state opposed it at every turn. At one point, Bill was called to answer questions in front of the governor's commission and then before an Ohio state judge, but both sessions were squashed by his lawyers and the courts. And then DeSalle lost his re-election. His role in Edith's case had likely contributed to the loss. But even if DeSalle couldn't pin the crime on Bill, he wasn't about to let Edith wither away in prison. On January 14, 1963, on his last day in office, he officially commuted Edith's sentence. It was reduced from first-degree murder to second-degree. With that, she would be eligible for parole after 10 years. Since she had already served three, she only had seven more to go. Edith was disappointed that she hadn't received a full pardon, but she accepted her fate. After all, she had participated in the cover-up, and DeSalle saw this as a compromise. In his eyes, 10 years was enough punishment for her role in the whole affair. After her seven years were up, Edith applied for parole. A year later, on May 12, 1971, 53-year-old Edith was granted release from prison. She left jail in the middle of the night to avoid being hounded by the press. Her release had sparked a new round of media that she wanted no part of. Edith may have once enjoyed having all eyes on her, but she had since learned that not all attention was good. Most Cincinnati citizens were convinced that she had lied to avoid the death penalty, and they were outraged that she was being let back out onto the streets. And even for those who didn't feel quite so strongly, there were still plenty of questions about her story. 
She didn't want to deal with any of that scrutiny again. Instead, she wanted to go on living a quiet, peaceful life out of the public eye. And she got just that. She spent the next few years with her close relatives until 1975 when she remarried for the last time. She and her husband built a log cabin and lived out the rest of their days there. She never got in trouble with the law again, and she never spoke about her time behind bars or the events that had led up to it. She had told her truth already. If anyone in her family had any doubts, they never asked. And as for the public, well, they weren't Edith's concern anymore. On Christmas Eve 1999, 81-year-old Edith passed away, surrounded by her family. For the first half of her life, it had always been about putting herself first. But by the end, all she wanted was her loved ones near. She died a happy woman, and she took her truths to the grave. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Edith Klump, amongst the many sources we used, we found Cincinnati's Savage Seamstress by Richard O. Jones extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Vanessa Richardson